everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Today's quote is from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's an old tweet, but it's a goodie. She says, The reason women are critiqued for being too loud or too meek, too big or too small, too smart to be attractive or too attractive to be smart, is to belittle women out of standing up publicly. The goal is to critique into submission, and that applies to anyone challenging power. Welcome to Permission to Speak, the podcast about how we talk and how we get ourselves heard with me, Samara Bay. Today's guest is Katie Hill. She was a congresswoman. She won her campaign for U.S. Congress along with AOC and the blue wave of women and outsiders in the 2018 midterms and was seen as a star of the new class. She was 31 years old. She'd flipped a forever red district just north of L.A. She had run the most millennial campaign ever, according to Vice, and was a true inspiration for progressives, for the queer community, for women everywhere. But then nude photos were leaked and allegations were made and she was called both a victim and a predator. And rather than stay and fight, she surprised everyone, including Speaker Pelosi, and decided to resign last November, less than a year after she was sworn in. I wanted to have Katie on, first of all, because um, I followed her campaign in, in its early days. There's some amazing activist organizations in L.A. that did fundraising and canvassing for her and asked her tough questions. Shout out to Mom to Vist and Fia and hang out to good, hi guys. Um, but also, I wanted to have her on because, you know, <laughs> she had the sort of public experience that I think we all fear, losing total control of the narrative sexist double standards, she contemplated suicide, and she ultimately went out with the biggest of bangs 
delivering a resignation speech on the floor of Congress in which she said, uh, quote, Yes, I'm stepping down, but I refuse to let this experience scare off other women who dare to take risks, who dare to step into this light, who dare to be powerful. It might feel like they won in the short term, but they can't in the long term. We cannot let them. You guys, we swear a lot in this conversation. We talk about a lot of the real shit from how she decided that she could actually run to be a congressperson with no prior political experience in the first place, to how she prepared that fateful speech and what happened after, including her new book and her political action committee that she started to fulfill the promise of that speech. And um, she may or may not have had two glasses of rosé while we talked, which was honestly so perfect. And we are now uh, rethinking the whole show to record during happy hour moving forward. Um, Guys, this is... Katie Hill. I actually want to start by just going back, back to what made you decide you wanted to run. Sure. If you had kind of like an aha moment. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the aha moment was, well, start back at the beginning. So I was never planning on running for office in the first place. I thought maybe I'd do something in politics. At, at one point, I thought I wanted to be a speechwriter, um, but I wasn't Oh, that's interesting. On, I know. Why? <laughs> my, well, my grandpa probably... suggested that at one point because I was an English major and he mm-hmm. he's like, you you could write speeches for politicians. And um, and I thought that would be cool, but I, yeah, that wasn't really something You're I like, what pursued. if the politician in question is me? It, 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 like, it, that just wasn't really on the radar. You know what I mean? It just wasn't really something that occurred to me until, um, until much later. So I was, but I just mean like having the speech writing, you know, ability or having, having that as a, as a concept, you know, a lot of, obviously a lot of politicians sort of need help with like how to put a speech together. And and I'm sure that, you know, (laughs) a a lot of people don't know this, but, um, the, the last speech that I gave, I wrote completely on my own. I didn't have anybody else help with it. I didn't feel like I could. So needless to say, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about how you prepped for that. Okay. But yeah, great. <laughs> um, but yeah when I started, I was, uh, basically I was the executive director of this huge nonprofit called path people assisting the homeless. It was the largest homeless services organization in California. It's gotten even bigger since I left and I'm really proud of the work they do. But, um, when, you know, so things were going really well on, on what we were doing, we had advocated for these ballot measures at the local level um, in the city and county of Los Angeles that would have a huge impact on people and we were successful. But at the same time that those passed, um, Trump won. And I, like women across the country, was absolutely horrified. And specifically for the work that we were doing with the the nonprofit that I was with, we knew that having a Republican House and Senate and having Donald Trump as president meant that everything we did was in jeopardy. And the people we served, the most vulnerable people in our communities were at serious risk for literally their lives um, because of, you know, how social programs would be cut and how healthcare, they were, you know, the first thing on their agenda was to try and get rid of the Affordable Care Act, which is, which had literally saved people from dying on the streets. And I said, okay, I need to do something. So, you know, obviously flipping the house was our next electoral opportunity. And I thought, okay, I'll get involved in that somehow. So I, I literally go to swing left um, the website, and I type in my zip code, and much to my surprise, the nearest swing district was the was the one that I'd spent my entire life in, where I still lived and where I, where I'd grown up. And 
you know, having grown up there, I thought it was going to forever be a Republican stronghold. It was, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's got Santa Clarita and Simi Valley and the Antelope Valley. And these are places, if you know Southern California, that have long histories of being staunchly Republican and, and you know, often very racist. And yeah, it's got a storied past. But so I, when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. There's actually a chance to flip my own district. And so I was like, I'm going to get involved in a campaign. But sure enough, this is this is in about f- late January, early February of 2017. At, yeah, 2017. And um, and then I looked at who was running and, and no one had officially announced yet. But the person who was the most likely to was the guy who had run the last time and uh, had lost, even though he lost by six, even though Hillary Clinton had won by seven. So I thought, well, A, I want to support a woman if I can. And B, I don't think this guy can win. He wasn't from our district. And I, I thought he had a lot of other issues as a candidate. Uh, so I'm complaining about this, right? And I'm saying, I want to find a woman. <laughs> da, 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 da. Who are you complaining to? Uh, a number of different friends and mentors, um, mm-hmm. in, mainly in, the, in my workspace. And, mm-hmm. um, and so finally, one of them said to me, she's like, Katie, you're complaining an awful lot about this. Why don't you run? <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> and, and so then I thought I mean, about it overnight. That's so real. That's so <laughs> I mean, real. Yeah. I know. And so I thought about it overnight. And then the next morning in the shower, I was, you know, contemplating this. And it was in the shower that I was like, fuck it. If, if Donald Trump can become president of the United States, why can't I run for Congress? You know what I mean? Like, it was kind of one of those moments you're like, I've been successful. I've done all these things. I matched this profile of a person that should be electable in my district that, you know, Mm. grew up there. That's the daughter of a police officer and a nurse and put themselves through school and da, 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 da. And, um, and so I, I remember getting out of the shower and thinking, this is totally crazy, but I'm going to see, I'm going to see about this. So I texted her, the woman who had suggested it to me. And she was, she worked for an, uh, an LA County supervisor and had been involved in politics and advocacy for a lot longer than I had. And so I'm like, so what if I actually do this? Like, where would I even start? And, um, and so we got together for coffee and I, I followed a few other different random connections and very quickly, uh, it, it came to fruition and, um, then my life changed <laughs> in a pretty big way. So, you know, there's so many statistics and you've referenced them recently about, you know, women holding themselves back that, that, that we worry about our age, we worry about our experience, we worry about our credentials. Like, how did you talk to yourself about that specifically? Cause obviously you're on the young end. Yeah. Well, honestly, I mean, that was, that was the big thing is that I'd always, I'd always been the young person, right? I'd always just in my career, I had advanced early. And so, um, I had to get comfortable with being the young person in the room and having more authority and power than, you know, is usual for somebody my age and having mm-hmm. to be taken seriously when most people that you're negotiating with are, are trying to bring along to your side or, or whatever you might even supervising are sometimes decades older than you. So I had probably more confidence around that than than many would just because I'd had to grapple with it earlier. But I swear the biggest thing was that that I saw what is supposed to be a politician does not matter anymore. The the rules around all of that have been shattered if this guy can become president. Not in a good way, not in the way that we want them to be shattered, but they are. And so I thought um you know, there is no reason that I should be held back or that anyone else should be held back if they're running for the right reasons 
when this guy who was running totally for the wrong reasons managed to get elected. So, you know, I guess, that was, <laughs> I, guess was, I guess it was that kind of rationalization that was like the 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 big push for me. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, and also there's just, you know, that's that's relevant for all of us who are thinking about stepping into any type of leadership position is like, you know, if we want to see better leaders, maybe it's us. Yeah, and maybe yeah. the experience that we've had in the rooms we've had just trying to be taken seriously is actually, you know, in the case, in your case, that is actually what leadership experience or politi- you know, political experience is. It's not yeah. having run for office before. It's having no. had to work to, you know, have authority in a room. Yeah. And and also, I think that people who have worked on the front lines of of any, you know, social issue have this lived experience and just this practical experience of how the laws and and the the ways that people govern actually impact um you know day-to-day lives and and for me specifically the most vulnerable people in our communities and um and so when i i have young people frequently ask me you know if i want to get into politics if i'm thinking i want to be a politician later what do you recommend i do these are college and high school students mm-hmm. so i'm like the best thing that i can recommend is to work in a nonprofit work in in the whatever you're passionate about. It could be the environment, it could be women's issues, it could be, you know, whatever kind of social services, but do the hands-on work and and make sure that you're doing it for the right reason. And that will prepare you for whatever you want to do in politics. And um, I just think that that's so much more applicable than going to law school and doing some constitutional law stuff. So And getting further and further away from, yeah, you know, the yeah, people exactly. that you're going to be representing, literally. Yep. That's such good advice. It's such, it's so like, it's so practical. I wonder also if you could tell us, because you are the first congressperson I have had on this show. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. Um, Great. Like a little bit about what the actual experience was like when you were working there. I want to know specifically in terms of, you know, the group of you guys who came in um, in 2018 and like what kind of conversations you had quietly as you were sort of trying to understand what the power dynamics were. Yeah. So that was a that was fascinating. That was so exciting. And, um, you know, so we got elected on November. What was it? November. I can't even remember the days anymore. November 6th, I guess. <laughs> also, what is time right yeah, now? <laughs> totally. Even more now than before. But we got an, the day after we got elected, those of us who knew that we've, we'd won the next day, um, we got an invitation and we'd even gotten this before of if you win, hold these dates because you're immediately going to go to orientation. And it was the following week. So it was the election was on a Tuesday. You needed to be in Washington by the following Monday for starting your orientation. So um, basically that was, that was when it begins and you, you go and you meet all these other people had, who had won and who, and, and so many of us were, you know, we weren't politicians at all, right? This was our first run for any kind of office. And so we were, we had no idea what we were doing, but we felt like we were in a, we were very much in there with a mandate to um, to kind of shake things up and to do things differently and to fucking save the country from yeah. this monster. And um, so there was that excitement and that energy. And we had all these women who had won. And, and many of the women knew each other from the campaign trail because Emily's List had supported us. And so like, I got to know a bunch of the women uh, before even the primaries were over. And then that continued. And then those of us on... That we're called red to blue. Those of us who were in the highly competitive Republican seats um, were, we also, you know, were around each other all the time during the campaigns. So, you know, it wasn't all unknown, but then there was this kind of mixing of everybody who had come from these blue districts, these solid blue districts. And, you know, there were 60 of us. 
And uh, you go into this orientation and you're just completely bombarded by so much information. One of the pieces of information is that you have to basically elect these leaders for all kinds of different positions before we ever are even sworn in. And so we were getting sworn in on January 3rd. And um, so this is this is middle of November at this point. We found out that there was going to be a freshman representative to leadership, which was, it was a relatively new position, but it was one that um, the speaker designated for the freshman class to have, um, to have a voice at the table. And that's, you know, that's a big deal, especially since we were coming in there. I think many of us thinking we were going to have to have basically a big old fight with the establishment to even have our voices heard. So we thought, great, that's exciting. But we also said there are 60 freshmen, which is a quarter of the, more than a quarter of the, of the Democratic caucus. And so, I mean, that's a big number. So a couple of us made the argument that if we're a quarter of the Democratic caucus, we should have more than one seat at the table. So uh, we made the case that it should be two. And Jonah Goose from Colorado and I, um, we basically said, we'll run together. And it was, it was, you know, it was pretty like pretty good political maneuvering for very early on. And um, <laughs> like, it was, you know, that was, that was a lot of fun, but also we, we I wanted to be at that table. I, I, if I was going to have the opportunity, I wanted to be in the room with Nancy Pelosi and everything like mm-hmm. that. And, and so we got, we got to, and, um, and, but then it was, then the responsibility that you have is becomes huge. It becomes, you are the liaison between leadership and the freshman class. You are the one who's supposed to take whatever the freshman class is feeling and saying and, and want to, wants to prioritize and, and reflect that in these leadership meetings. And, um, it was, I mean, a, you were literally representing two different bodies at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, your constituents and, and the class yeah. and that's not, they didn't always align exactly. Right. You had to kind of balance that. Um, and I often also had to say, you know, this is the overwhelming view of people in the freshman class, but like, it's not necessarily mine. So I had to kind of balance that, but I learned so much by being in that position, just in terms of how the deals are made, what, uh, you know, the, the history of these people who have been in Congress for so long. And, uh, you know, the, the speaker, Nancy Pelosi, especially just just in awe of how she did things. And this is the beginning of a new Congress where Trump is finally going to be um, held back a little bit because the Republicans obviously for two years had left him completely unchecked. Uh, so it was, it was really an incredible time. And I'm, I'm very lucky and glad that I was there. I am too. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So your resignation speech. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about like practically speaking. I mean, you referenced having written it yourself. You said more than you needed to. You know, you said very boldly, I'm leaving, but we have men who have been credibly accused of intentional acts of sexual violence and remain in boardrooms on the Supreme Court in this very body and worst of all, in the Oval Office. I want to know like how you prepped for that, especially, I mean, obviously during such a like insanely heightened emotional time, but what was your thought process about what you wanted to say? So I had, um, and I wrote about this in the book, but literally the day after I, well, I decided to resign, was in this dark depth of uh, depression, and then, um, you know, contemplated, very seriously contemplated suicide. And when I decided not to, when I, when I got out of that space, 
Um, the next day was when I when I woke up and and decided I needed to write this speech because and when I was going to give it and everything like that. And I knew I wanted to give it. I wanted to make sure that I that I actually gave a speech. I didn't need to give a speech, right? That was, but I wanted to. And um, and so I got up and I just started. I just started on it, and a lot of it just came out, right? It was just, but but I knew a number of the points that were really important to me. Um, one of which was that I was, you know, I wanted to reflect that I was sorry, that I was sorry for everything, that I was sorry for, I was sorry for what I'd done. I was sorry for stepping down. I was sorry for letting people, you know, uh, letting people down and, and my responsibility for it. But I also wanted to point out that this is, you know, the expectations that we have for women and the, and I think the pressure that I felt even from myself to resign is very different from uh, from those that you know we have towards men, and that's is exemplified by Donald Trump, who has been accused by over twenty five women of sexual misconduct, and you know that that probably runs a lot deeper than we even know. So um, I felt like it was important to kind of to reflect on that and to and to say uh, you know. I'm stepping back now for a number of reasons, including that I did not want to be a distraction. I didn't want to be used as a tool. I didn't want to be weaponized uh, against my colleagues or or as just a distraction. As the, just as the impeachment hearings, I know right, were starting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I also I wanted people to know that I that I recognized where there's an injustice, right, and that I that I'm going to find a way to to continue to fight that. And my role is different, but I don't want. I wanted people to know that them having worked on my campaign or um, supported me in whatever way that I that I was going to make sure that it was still worth something. It wasn't in vain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, and I mean, we're going to take a quick break in a second, and then we're going to talk about you know exactly what you have done. But before we do, I want to just I want to linger here for like you know this is on on some sort of sort of fundamental level this podcast is about public speaking and our mm-hmm. sense of power when we stand up to talk and i wish yeah. I, I would i would love you to talk about like what the physical feeling was of like making yourself walk out there what it felt like to actually you know give that speech and also if you've listened back and if you have any kind of things that come up you know yeah, yeah actually i have not listened back to it and it's in full i've seen the snippets that people sometimes replay before i um, you know, before I come onto a show or that I've I've just caught parts of, but um, I have not sat and listened to the entire thing. And honestly, I think that that would be really hard to do. Um, but I, I mean, I also work in Hollywood, and like actors don't like to look back at themselves either. You know? Totally, yeah. I want to know about like what was going through your head if yeah. you remember what how you decided to take a breath when you did. You know, yeah. like what it was yeah. to actually step out there because the version that you delivered was really even. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't think that was an accident. I really did feel like I had to completely steal myself for it. And uh, I, I've described it this way before, but I, you know, I put on that, I'd never worn that red dress before. My mom had bought it for me and um, was waiting for the right occasion to wear it. And huh. I felt like that was the, <laughs> not the crazy. occasion that it was intended, but. <laughs> Thanks mom. <laughs> yeah. But um, but it was meaningful to me. It was defiant. It was um, in a way that I felt I felt like I identified a lot with Hester Prynne in the Scarlet Letter, and I felt like it was my own kind of version of that. Um, but it was also I'm not hiding away. I'm not going to wear a demure or 
neutral color. I'm going to, I'm going to be bold on my way out. And, um, and so I put that on and it, it felt like my battle uniform and, and put the red lipstick on, I put the makeup on, I did the whole thing. I went through the routine of, you know, what you do every day as a woman getting ready for something, but I made it, it, it felt very intentional. Like those, those steps of getting ready felt or were very intentional. And, and that whole time I'm like psyching myself up for it, whatever this mission is. And for me, I, I knew that my performance in that moment was, um, you know, it was the last thing I was going to do in Congress. It was the last thing I was going to do as a sitting member of Congress. And it needed to show who I was and what this meant going forward and what this meant to so many people uh, in in different capacities, right? The ones, you know, the, the people who had looked up to me, the people who had worked on it, my family, my staff. And I felt like I had a, a great deal of responsibility to to do it right. So I got picked up by one of my staff members and like literally in, picked up in a car to go there. So that was the first time I'd seen him in a while. And, and his name's Paul. He was just, he's just phenomenal. And um, anyway, he, he gave me some, like, I don't know, there was something about that car ride and it's like a seven minute car ride from where I was living to Capitol Hill that felt calming that he was like, well, you ready? And I'm like, I guess so. And, um, and was just, it, it was just something about that, you know, being there and like both of us kind of, we knew we were going to have to have this walk into Capitol Hill where all the cameras were going to be and all the, all the photographers and, and sure enough, they've used that photo of me walking into Capitol Hill with Paul in the background, like a million different places. And I, I didn't want to show any kind of weakness in that moment. And so when I went to give the speech, you know, I, I had the same thing in mind. So I walked up, I took a deep breath and delivered it. I knew that I had to speak more slowly than um, than you normally do. Uh, I didn't want a, my voice to crack. And it felt like a, you know, that was my moment, right? Like that was the moment that I had to, I just had to get right. What do you think would have happened if you had shown more weakness? Because I feel like we all struggle with like, what, it, you know, what is this version of tough that we need to show the world? I mean, mm-hmm. I think you're probably well, I, right in that moment, but you know... It also makes not, me feel resentful <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that was part of it, right? Is that I had I felt like I'd shown so much weakness on my own separately, right? Like I and and, and not even not even at f- like fault for that, but just that I'd I'd kind of exhausted my emotions. I had gone as far as I could with them, and um and at that point, it was it was like a it was like a mission. It was a it was a duty. It was this, it was the it, the point of it. And the point of the speech was to show that in spite of everything, I was, I felt strong and I was going to continue to do work, even though it wasn't in the way that I intended to. So I don't, I think that showing vulnerability and showing, you know, emotions in all kinds of different situations is appropriate and encouraged. And, and there have been plenty of times where I've, you know, I think even the, when you talked about seeing me at that first event after I think I cried while I was talking there. Um, so I don't have an issue with that, but it was the most important thing for me at that moment was was defiance. And because of that, that's why I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to show anything else. And truthfully, I felt that at the time, right? Like I, I, I felt like I'd internalized that. Well, and it also strikes me, I mean, you... <sighs> You had been put in a vulnerable position, so it didn't probably feel like, allow me to show you more vulnerability, you know? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good point. (laughs) Um, Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then uh, come back and talk about your book and your pack. 
Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX Anniversary Sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. We're back. I want to talk about She Will Rise and your pack, Her Time. You've said that your inspiration came from asking yourself, how can I fight for the issues I believe in and actually change policy? And more importantly, how can I change the power dynamics and change the face of power? I mean, this podcast is all about changing the sound of power. So like, obviously, you know, <laughs> Resonate. I'm on your team. Um, and I know you had re-election money. Yep. When you resign. And so this was like a sort of an obvious progression, or maybe it wasn't obvious, but can you talk about what the thought process was and why this pack is different than other, sure. you know, groups that that help um, encourage women to run? Yeah. So so members of Congress who resign or who lose or um, for one reason or another are no longer running for re-election, um, they have two different choices. One is that they can just leave the money there. And many do, because if you ever run for federal office, no matter how long it's been, you can basically reactivate it and use it for your next run. So I had, I had people in, you know, at this point you're talking to campaign lawyers and uh, to just kind of try and figure out everything. Cause it's like a total change and everything. 
Um, the and logistics so they were kind of, on top yeah. of the emotional level. <laughs> no. like, so, so they were kind of explaining this stuff to me and, but I, but I knew that I didn't want to do that. I felt like it was disingenuous, um, to the people who, I just felt like I needed to do something meaningful with, with that money for all the people who had supported me. And you had like a million dollars. Yeah, it was a lot. And, um, you know, I'd been one of the most successful fundraisers before I was elected. And then after for my reelection, I was, you know, I was, uh, of, of all of us. Why do you think that is, Katie? <sighs> That's a good question. I don't really know. I think, and I've, I've told people this before when, when I've given women advice on fundraising, I say that you, you can't feel like you're asking for the money for yourself. You have to feel like you're asking for it for a greater cause. And, and you are, you, you know, you're not running for office for yourself. You're running for office to do something with it. I mean, actually, this is probably a second half of the answer about being a nonprofit person. Yeah, exactly. So that, that was exactly it's one of like, the things I've said is that you, it, working in the nonprofit sector, you also get very comfortable asking for money. And, um, and you know, women are naturally, we're, we're naturally not as good of fundraisers as men because of we're trained not to do that. We're trained that it's rude. We're trained that, you know, we're trained to be kind of uncomfortable talking about things. We don't want to ask for stuff for ourselves. Uh, money is- Literally been talking about money. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And- um, and so when you're in the nonprofit side, and I, and I worked in development and fundraising for a long time. So, so for me, it was very easy. Like, I'm not running for office because this is fun or enjoyable or easy. I'm running for office because I felt like I needed to do something. And, uh, and so, you know, when I'm asking for money, it's not to line my pockets. It's to go to this thing, right? And it, it was the same exact way when I was doing it for the nonprofit sector. You know, I'm asking for it because we're working on this really important mission. So... Yeah. That's what I tell people is that, you know, you don't, you, and, and that was also still something nonetheless that I had to, I had to practice and learn and get better at, um, as a candidate, because it still felt different at first because you did feel like you were asking for it for yourself. And yeah. especially when you have to start with your personal circle, because you don't have anyone else to ask, like, you know, I'm asking my, my friggin' high school friends for $50. That's, that's the hardest time to, to start raising that initial money, which is also mm-hmm. part of the reason that I started her time because the initial point to get to, you know, uh, uh, viability or, um, to be taken seriously as a candidate or to, um, you know, to, to really be somebody who's seen as competitive, you have to raise some initial money. And if you're a new candidate, if you're a first time candidate, if you're not coming from a political background, if you're not coming from money, that is really hard. I've been there. I know how hard that is. So what I had asked you is how, how your pack is different. And I know you've talked about going after candidates who's who might be bigger risks, but seem yep. like they're better better fit for their own district. Yeah, yeah. So that was the other piece is that many organizations, DC PACs, et cetera, won't get involved in primaries. They Even the women's organizations a lot of times don't want to get involved in a primary if it's a woman-on-woman race, or they don't want to get involved if the person doesn't, if it does, this is, this is a total common theme is that if it, if the person seems like they're not going to win, like they don't have much right. of a chance it's of a winning, long shot. They, right. there's no, regardless they, of if they're the person who should. Yep, exactly. And so they just don't take that. They don't take that bet. They don't want to. Um, and I get it, right. You're, you know, you, you raise money, you want to spend it in ways that are going to be effective. Well, the way I see it is that we're filling a gap that there are many organizations who will fund you once you get to a certain point and help you make it from, you know, here to here, but there are very few people who will help you make it from here to here. Um, and For anybody ha- listening, <laughs> that was the second one was a lot smaller of a yes. gap. 
<laughs> yeah, sorry. I realize it's not a, the gestures were maybe not <laughs> so helpful, but, um, but yeah, that it's, it's kind of like if it were on a, if it were on a curve then, and I'm still using hand gestures now, whatever. No, but now anyway, you're also you using get, words. I yeah. know. Ugh, we should just put this up on the air. This is so... <laughs> I've been thinking that but, a lot, by the way, because I started this podcast and then I'm like, wait, but people have told me my whole life that I'm so expressive with my face. And I'm like, I just cut off are. that whole side of my I know, I know. skills. Damn it. Well, I started making, when I started doing all these podcasts, I started asking my, the person who's helping me schedule them. I'm like, can you tell me if there's supposed to be video involved or not? Right. Because a few times I showed up thinking that there was no video. And, and, yes. and, and then I'm like, oh, Wait. <laughs> right, right, but, right. Yeah. I actually, I put on lipstick, but it's only yeah, because great. of you. It's for oh, you. This is well, my warrior you. lipstick. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's a totally, it's a total shout out. No, that's uh, great. Anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's kind of the the point behind it is that like we'll, we'll take risks and, and, you know, the people I'm fundraising from, I'm not trying to make the promises that all the candidates are going to win, that we're going to have this track record of, you know, I don't even care if we if half of our candidates win. I think that it's still successful if um, if we get any wins and if we're setting these people up to win down the road or if we're making a dent in the electoral turnout. That's the other thing is that once one organization with a certain amount of credibility gets in, others will be like, oh, they think right. it's possible. Then, right. and then they start to get in. And then they literally become less of a long shot. Yep, exactly, exactly. A huge kind of gap in what needs to happen and that you're able to do as a PAC that's not just about directly giving money is you can mobilize. And so there's a there's a real... We, women are a very strong voting block, Democratic women especially. Women vote more than men. Uh, but that is really like at the older ages that we've seen that. And women at the older ages are not necessarily inclined to vote for other women. And so women as a voting block from like the ages of 18 to 45, we want to figure out how to mobilize them, not just to show up in a presidential election, but to show up in every single election and specifically vote for women because they're women. And that we want, we actually want representation. We want to get to parity. And it's not it is, it, it, we don't have any shame in saying that you should vote for women because they're women. Whereas that's, I think that's historically been kind of like a, a taboo thing to say. And even women have shied away from it. They're like, I don't want support just because a woman. I'm like, yeah, you should support women because they're women. And there's all kinds of, all kinds of research to back that up. Plus there's just the fact that we need to have equal representation. I think it's so genius that at the most basic level, what you're interested in is taking bigger risks, finding people who might be bigger risks, but worth Mm -hmm. it. Because Mm -hmm. I feel like your superpower because of what you went through is um, like not being risk averse. Like, you know, shitty stuff went down. So like, what is there to be afraid of? I mean, you know, there continues to be because life is complicated, but like, you know, there's something really real about that. And it makes me think of this quote I have from your book. Okay. <laughs> you said, women continue to feel unsafe in both the real world and online. When we are assaulted, even from the time we're little girls, our minds are already warped to the point that we are afraid it's our fault if a man hurts us. We worry that we won't be believed or that we will feel shamed if we come forward. And those concerns are founded in harsh truths. That, my friends, is the patriarchy winning. That's misogyny thriving at the most fundamental level. If we can't even have a basic expectation of safety, how can we claim our power? Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, I mean, my question, of course, is so how, how do we claim our power? And yeah. your whole book is sort of an answer to that. And I think talking about parity is a massive, massive part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and 
I think that's exactly it is that all of these things kind of coincide and that you're not going to have or, or depend on each other, I guess, right? Men don't understand that same kind of risk that we feel or that 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 vulnerability that we feel around physical safety. They just aren't, they, they're not exposed God, in that so, way. They're, yeah. I remember from the time that I was, you know, very young, you're taught as, as a girl, you don't go out by yourself. You don't, you can't ride your bike alone. You don't, you know what I mean? Like you're, you boys have just all this freedom because they're boys and because they, they just don't, they're taught that you're, you're strong. You're, you're not going to be a victim, but girls, it's the opposite. You need to watch out for everything. And so I think that, I think that just having grown up with a totally different experience, there are many men that I think are sympathetic to that, who want women to be safe, who, who, who think about it in this like savior kind of mentality. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but also is not, is not a, it might be more of a sympathetic thing than an empathetic thing. And it's not going to get prioritized in the same way um, as people who really get it. It's not going to turn into legislation that that translates into the real world and that translates as meaningfully if you if you haven't been raised with exactly the kinds of concerns that we're trying to address. So, And this is why you're saying vote for women because exactly, they're women. It's exactly. not because of the vagina part of the woman. No, it's, it's because, because of the of life experience. Life experience, yeah. <laughs> and that we have so many shared experiences as women. I wonder how, I mean, especially for those of us who follow you on Twitter, how like humor sort of plays its way because obviously what we were just talking about is like so dark, mm-hmm. right? And obviously you've talked really publicly about suicide. You've talked about the connection between um, statistics about suicidal thoughts and cyber exploitation. Yeah. And then on the other hand, like, you know, you're you're fucking hilarious. Thank you. And your tweets are like so, you you just recently said, um, I had a few former colleagues text me today and say, I'm so jealous. You can say whatever you want now. And I'm just like, well, and then the little shrug emoji, <laughs> there's a trade-off. Yep. Yep. That was real. Like I actually, I don't know what, I think earlier in the day I had, I had used a couple of curse words. And so people, a couple of my, my old friends from Congress saw that and were like, we're like, I wish I could say that. And um, I, I think a few people who, well, lots of people who commented were like, they should be able to say whatever they mean to. And I, and I should have, I should have clarified. They weren't, they're not saying, they're not not saying what they mean. They just are not as uh, unfettered with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally politic, right? Yeah, I mean, there yeah. are reasons we have to be politic when we're yeah. in whatever employment situations yeah. and when we're not, yeah. we don't. Yeah, and now I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. You're a, your own boss. Yeah, exactly. I've got nothing, I've got nothing holding me back from that. And I'm like, if I ever do run again, then it, this is me. <laughs> Truly. You know, yeah. I had Elise Hogan recently, who the oh, president of so Mayroll. She's mm-hmm. so wonderful, right? I love her. And one of the things she said when I asked her, like, what people should really be doing to prepare to run for office besides, you know, learning how to fundraise, besides the practical stuff. And she was like, think about being proud of your life. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Yeah. Right? It's because just- you have to sell it. You have to sell your backstory more than anyone, right? You need to you need to be able to translate that to why people should support you. You need to be able to translate that to um, you know, how you're going to do a good job and and holding that pride and and bragging. We are not naturally inclined to brag about ourselves and and you have to. And in order to brag about yourself, you have to be proud of yourself. Yes, I was just going to say, I have a book deal and I'm also writing a book and it's about the same stuff, thank you, as as permission to speak. I mean, the whole idea, right, of how do we give ourselves permission? Yeah. And part of it is that, you know, 
inevitably we brag, quote unquote, better when it's on behalf of other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's everything mm-hmm. you already talked about. Like yeah. when you when you get up to speak, you're not really, in almost no circumstance, are you just doing it for you? Right, right. But we forget that when all the eyes are on us and we're like, oh, I'm asking for money. I'm the one doing the thing, you know? Yep, yep. We must reconnect. But there are actual studies that show that there's a fundamental difference between the motivations for why men run for office and why women run for office. And we should take, we should take pride in this too, that when, and this is a study of, of members of Congress from several years ago, every member of Congress was asked why they ran, what, what made them decide to do it. And the majority of uh, the women said that they did it because they, you know, they wanted to do something good for their community. They, um, they wanted to help people, things like that. Those kind of compassionate descriptors. The majority of men said that they had always wanted to be a politician. (laughs) And so when you talk about like doing it for other people, we have that. We have that innately. We have that, you know, uh, ingrained in us. It's truly our motivation. And that's not necessarily it for guys. Nancy Pelosi does a great job of saying this and she doesn't, she doesn't separate it based on gender. I think she's, she's still of the generation who would never want to say vote for a woman because she's a woman. Um, but she says that, you know, great candidates and, and members or politicians or whatever know their why. And to be able to, to be effective, you have to know your why. You have to know what motivates you. And you have to be, be able to share that with other people. And I just think that that's something that we are naturally better at. And I saw, you know, I was with other candidates on the trail over and over and over again. And you, you really did see, like, there were just not as many men who could tell the same compelling stories about why, because, and I, cause it's cause I don't think that they had as good a reason. I just don't think they did. Whereas you had these women get up and they were talking about how their mom, you know, died because she didn't have a sh- health insurance and they saw the affordable care act that was un- in jeopardy. And they decided that they had to, to run against their sitting congressman because he wouldn't host a town hall about it. And you just like that amazing documentary that, uh, Alexandra was in mm-hmm, with exactly. the other three women too. Yep, exactly. Final question. This is from my friend Jessica, who was one of the people who went door to door for you. And I asked oh. if, she, if she had any questions and she wanted to know what you thought about your, if your voice, if the way you expressed yourself has changed as going from a, you know, uh, a private citizen to campaigning to, you know, obviously being a congressperson and then sort of to being an advocate. If you feel like you've noticed sort of a change. I mean, you've also grown, you've aged, literally, sure. you know, aged during that. Yeah. But if you if you think about that and and how you can help us to think about Definitely. our own evolution. Oh, for sure. Well, I think part of it is I was comfortable in my skin for what I was before I became a, co- a politician. You know, I was confident in my role. I knew that I was an expert in my field. Um, and so I embraced that. And I and I felt confident when I was speaking about that. You know, anytime if you if you wanted to talk to me anything about homelessness or housing, I could go into any room with anybody there and know that I was I was an expert. And so getting to that point again as a candidate and having to know enough about all the issues, running for a campaign and running, especially in a primary, I got to tell you, what you have to know about is stuff that you just like, Democratic primary voters have zero forgiveness for the fact that you're new. Because I was getting these things thrown at me that I'm like, fucking no. Right. I knew a lot more about policy than I think many people do right. in a in a diverse array of areas, but but certainly I wasn't an expert in everything. And you kind of have to become 
pretty damn close to an expert in everything very quickly. And how do you like honor those moments when somebody, you know, is trying to sort of put you on the spot about Mm -hmm. something that's obviously very close to their heart and you're like, I literally don't know yet, but that doesn't mean I won't know. Right, exactly. And yeah, being able to answer that well and, and know how to, you know, to come off as, as smart and confident, but also knowing what you don't know and willing to learn is, that's a, that's a skill. That's something that you have, you have to kind of learn how to do as a candidate. So there's all kinds of things you had to learn to do as a candidate that you just didn't have to do before. Um, and then as a member, it changes entirely because you're now, you now have this authority that you didn't have. You, you were trying to convince people. You were trying to bring people on board. Now you are the authority and you're trying to, you're trying to make people feel better. You're even going to people who didn't, who didn't support you, but who you serve now. You were elected to serve the entire district, the entire community. Um, you don't get to decide that you're just supporting or you're just helping Democrats, right? Should we let Donald Trump know that that's how um Yeah, you know, works? I feel like it would be great to tell a lot of people that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so so that was an evolution. And um, and of course, again, the having to become confident in all of these new things that you didn't know before. And also the language that you were able to have on the campaign changes once you become a member of Congress too, because you are more restricted just in terms of there are more considerations now. You want your elected official to be like serious and really to to take all of this seriously and to take their job seriously. I mean, the rules around that are changing as well. I mean, you know, it's hard to navigate. Yeah. And I don't know that we've all figured that out, but... Um, or that we figured it out at all. <laughs> but, I mean, there's like this this concept of authenticity and then you're like, yeah. right, and, yeah. and how do I, you know, actually apply that? Because there are different versions of me. I'm a, I, I do know that when I'm being more formal, it's not, totally. not me. Right, totally. Yeah, exactly. And and so then I guess now, right, coming into coming into my own again, where I am unrestricted, I don't have any other, there's no one else that I'm representing except for the groups that I feel like the groups of individuals who I feel like I naturally represent that, mm. you know, that whether it's women or just underrepresented people or the LGBTQ community or, um, you know, young people, I think that there's, there are just other ones that kind of naturally happen. And I feel like I'm, I'm supposed to be a voice for them, but I can be whatever, whatever voice just happens that way, whatever, whatever comes to mind. So to me, there's a great deal of, of, you know, new power that's gained that way. I'm just going to say what I want to say. And, um, you know, some, some people won't like it. Like I, every time I, I use a curse word, I have people be like, I really wish you wouldn't talk like that. Or I cringe every sure. time you, sure. you know, use the vernacular. I, I read that comment the other day. Jesus. I wonder if you were a man, if that would at all. <laughs> know, I'm sorry. It just happens to be a theme on this podcast. I know, um, I know. But yeah. 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 No, but, and even, I mean, I, we should take a quick break and then we'll come back and, and find out who you brought in for us. But I also want to say, like, even, you know, I heard your your Madeline Brand interview, even just, like, talking about the the gray area nuance mm-hmm. of being a, a victim of abuse mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, 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 like, trusting that you can actually be in that gray area and actually think thoughts about how you can improve yourself as well as how, you know, you can hold other people accountable. I'm like... Thank you for being a fucking person. Yeah, yeah. It's not nothing, Katie. That's like huge. Yeah, and I feel like that's one of the reasons I I, I feel obligated to talk about it because I honestly, and I talk about it in the book too, but I, I honestly haven't heard, you know, others, even people like Al Franken or others who who you think want to kind of recover from, I don't know, something they've done. 
I just, I just don't feel like people talk about it. So I don't know. Yeah, there's I'm, really just like the PR spin way of doing things. And then yep. there's like showing up as a person and saying what, what feels true. Uh, okay, quick break. We'll be right back. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX Anniversary Sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. So, um, Katie, who did you bring in for us? Yeah, so I, um, I brought in Kamala Harris and we get to see her tonight. So, um, da, 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 yeah. da. Yes, we're recording this on Wednesday at like five o'clock Western uh, Pacific, I mean, and um, and she's like going to go on air like anytime now. Yeah, um, yes, thank hours. you for bringing in Kamala. Yes. I love it. Yeah, no, she was she was an obvious one for me because I, I had supported her from the very beginning as her, for her presidential campaign. And so clearly she was someone who's inspired me for a long time. And I'm, I just can't wait to see how she, when you talk about evolving and maturing and growing into new roles, this one's just going to be incredible for her. Completely. I have a little tiny 30-second clip I'm going to play for us, and then we're going to talk about her for just a minute. Great. I specifically wanted to pick a moment with Kamala where she was not on a big stage, not doing a big speech, and not in like prosecutor mode, but actually being conversational. Yeah. Uh, And I found this amazing interview with her and Sarah Cooper. Oh, that's awesome. Do you think that women need to be more like men, or do you think men need to actually be more like women? I, first of all, the toughest people I've known in my life have been women. <laughs> so, um, and so it's just, it's actually just bullshit. <laughs> Let's just start there. And, um, you know, it is, and it's interesting because, you know, you think about um, what, a, the, there are still myths, right? About what women can and cannot do, right? Mm-hmm. In, in spite of what a woman does every day. 
So good, right? Yeah, love her. Um, this whole interview with uh, with Sarah Cooper is like so on on the themes of what we're talking about. Awesome. I mean, it's so about how we show up and what the obligations are and aren't and, you know, uh, how we're sort of all changing. Sarah Cooper asks her really early on in this, how we, the electorate, start um, voting for people not based on their performance, quote unquote, but based on mm-hmm. how well they'll actually lead. Mm, yeah, I like that. You know, so this moment is so lovely, right? I mean, she just asked the obvious question, like all this stuff about having to be tough. Is it just that women have to act like men in order to win? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that, that Kamala has, I think she straddles it. She's, she's uh, at the age where for a long time, I think you did have to be more like a man or were expected at least to act more like a man. And, um, and so I think she went through a lot of her career like that. I mean, she is a tough as nails prosecutor. You've seen it. She's she made Brett Kavanaugh cry, right? But um, but but she also has this this very genuine, authentic laugh, and um, and she cares about people. And I think that that when you when you are able to find that balance of authenticity and toughness, that's when we are our strongest. I've definitely felt like there are moments when the strength out weighs the warmth partly yeah. because of her prosecutorial mm-hmm. background totally. and totally. how that's like actually, you know, uh, rewarded mm-hmm. in those certain rooms. And then it's lovely to see that, you know, she's a great reminder that we can be different in different mm-hmm. rooms and mm-hmm. there it's still us. And also, I mean, I love what you, what you pointed out, which is that like the more, the older she gets, the more power she has, the more she also has a little bit more like privilege to spend. Mm-hmm. And so she can spend it, you know, calling bullshit when she, when she sees it. Yeah. And ideally we can all do that when we're younger too, but it's like, it is easier when you've earned your shit, you know? Well, and totally, but also like the times have changed too. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, we've, we we often see that, I think with uh, women from an older, you know, older women politicians, how empowered or disempowered they feel about what they can say versus those who are coming up now. And, you know, that it's credit to those who forged the path uh, that we're able to have this kind of freedom now. And, and it and hopefully we're able to continue pushing that forward as, um, you know, for the next generation. Yeah. And I feel like you forged that path. I mean, truly. Thank you. I really, really, really want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I have to say, I actually was a little bit nervous because I was like, I have a bunch of vocal tics that, <laughs> that I've also let get worse because I haven't been doing this. <laughs> what do you think are your vocal tics? Oh, they're, they're the total SoCal things that I, I have like all the time. I I do a lot of the, not stutters, but kind of I go back and repeat the last word sort of thing. Um, I have the ums, <laughs> as I just did. So yeah, there's, they're different things. Like I that. mean, we're, <laughs> this is a very loving space where we talk about all that stuff in the, in the context of like, you know, obviously we should feel empowered to to uh, whatever, exorcise yeah. the ticks that don't work for us, but also like embrace the ones that are just representative of of totally. our identity. Totally. And so often it's just like that exact same um and that exact same, you know, sometimes vocal fry comes up that a man can get away with, a woman feels like she can't. And so I'm here to obviously say like, fuck the patriarchy. That's great. That's um, perfect. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I, interesting. I'm just curious to get your theory on this. You can use this part or not. But just yesterday I had a a guy here from the neighborhood where I'm visiting um, who said he he had a theory that I am taken a bit more seriously. Like I have an immediate uh, gravitas that as, as a woman that other women sometimes don't have because I have a naturally deeper voice. And I'm interested if you have any thoughts on that. 
look, that is very stereotypically a thing, Mm -hmm. you know? There's two different things I want to say. One is our voice is higher sometimes just because of our natural anatomy and sometimes because we're nervous or we we have sort of gotten habitually to this point where we're— what comes out sounds like we don't have power. So if we're talking up here, it could just be because of our anatomy, but largely it's not. And so what we're hearing is somebody who's cut themselves off from their sense of power. Right, that's interesting. Right? So if what we're, your your voice is not necessarily that low, right? It's not like, hi, hi, you know, it's like you're, um, God bless, (laughs) what's her name from Theramos, right? Um, Right? It's not that, it's that you're actually connected to your, to your, sense of power. You're breathing, you're, you're, body, you're embodied, as I like to say. I mean, you know, yeah. like you're literally using your body. So I sort of don't want to throw women with higher voices under the bus, but there is something to be said for everybody listening to notice, like, a- am I really cutting myself off from my sense of power? Do I have chest resonance? Or am I just coming, am I just coming out from up here? That's so, you know? that's, that's totally perfect way of describing it because I had the person who replaced me at PATH, the, she was my COO and, and then she became the deputy CEO, CEO when I left. Um, she, she's tiny. She's just five foot, mm. maybe five foot one and hundred pounds. And so she's got a naturally higher voice, but mm-hmm. she totally is taken seriously. I think it might take a second longer for people to take, cause she's also blonde and cute and tiny and, and pretty. And, um, and so I think it takes her a second longer for people to take her seriously. But when she does start talking, you know, she is confident. She does have but it's a high-pitched voice, and it. but it, I don't think it makes a difference for, you know, how she's taken, so. And then the other thing is that something that I noticed in uh, in your resignation speech and that you do sometimes and that I bet comes from the, you know, authoritative experience you have had is that sometimes you don't use a huge amount of pitch. So it isn't like a lot of up and downy, mm. which sometimes shows our vulnerability when we don't want to. Sometimes it's like the swoopy Southern California thing. It can sound really girly. <laughs> I'm all for like using pitch variation, you know? I really yeah. want people to feel free. But when we don't and when we need to show somebody like take me fucking seriously, we often use a little bit less. And so I think what he might be hearing is not necessarily the pitch as much as like I am keeping my voice down here to make it clear that I am in charge and I am not, uh, you know, I'm unflappable. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. I'll have to tell him this, that his theory is, <laughs> that his theory is a little bit grounded in sexism. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I mean, like, a dude telling a woman about her voice, I mean, you know, yeah, tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Katie, thank you. What a thank delight. Thank you. Good talking to you. <laughs> uh, wait, did you actually drink your rosé plus ice cubes? <laughs> um, I finished a glass of wine while we were talking, and 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 uh, a very kind and generous soul brought me another one. So <laughs> I have no shame anymore. I love that you were chilling. It's, it's like eight fifteen now. So I'm wait. If, no, but I feel like that's the that's the superpower. You're right. That you put it better than me for sure. Having no shame, dude. When, right? it's like, when your naked pictures are everywhere, you lose shame. Like it's just you can't have it anymore. <laughs> it just, and, and I mean, once, truly, what a gift! Yeah, well, what oh, a gift yeah, for sure. But like once you get past <laughs> once you get past that, then it it is it is a bit you know empowering. And like that's why I decided I was going to take the 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 name for my podcast that's going to be starting soon. That we'll have to circle back and you know. Um, swap off on or whatever. Oh my God, would be a dream, yeah. Uh, but I, um, I I decided to call it Naked Politics because, yes. you know, yes. I think that there's... I know. Yeah. You're taking back the narrative. Yeah, I'm trying to do. I know. And, you've, and I know you've talked to Monica Lewinsky as well. Oh yeah. The times have changed so much in the last... I mean, even in the last few years, let alone I'm like 25. blown away. I feel like sometimes deeply hopeful and sometimes like... 
oh shit, am I accidentally being hopeful because really like we're seeing the same patterns happen over and over, you know? But I'm inherently hopeful. I mean, the whole point of my book is like, this is the world that we're heading towards, as is yours. Yeah, I mean, I think think we have to be hopeful. I... And I believe it still. And, you know, it was, it was something I learned from being in the, in the world of trying to solve, you know, one of what I think is the most difficult problems in society, which is homelessness. You, you're faced with so much difficulty every day. And, and, and in, in Congress, it's the same thing, right? You see these problems and you're like, fuck, how are we going to solve these? We're so far away from being able to do it. But you have to have this general hopefulness that like we're we're going to chip away at it as much as we can. We're going to help one person at a time. We're going to um you know change this little piece that might have an impact on some people somewhere and some actions are going to be bigger than others and that's that's all you can do. We just have to keep going. There's no other option. If you if you fall into despair, uh then what is the point of anything? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, time for another drink, for God's Cheers. sake. Cheers. <laughs> um, thank you, Katie. Thank you. Thank you to Katie Hill for joining me. You can find out more about her book and her pack in the show notes or on our website, permissiontospeakpod.com. I'm doing IG Lives every Thursday, guys. So join me there tomorrow at Permission to Speak Pod. Uh, it's Q&A style. So, you know ask me actual questions or just, you know, watch it afterwards and learn something new. And as always, you can send me DMs at Permission to Speak Pod on Instagram or submit through the website. Let me know what's going on with your voice. Let me know if this conversation brought up anything for you. Let me know what you think about women needing to sound tough and strong and like a man to be taken seriously. Thank you to Sophie Lichterman and the team at iHeartRadio and all of you. We are recording this podcast at various locations around Los Angeles on land that is the historic gathering place for the Tongva Indigenous Tribe. And you can visit usdac.us to learn more about honoring Native land. Permission to Speak is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Vision, executive produced by Catherine Burt Canton and Mark Canton. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.